Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. I want to start it off with asking a question through the form of a story. And when I say that, I mean... Uh, as I share my experience, I want you to think, like, have I ever experienced a similar thing? The, the goal here is to help us all connect, right, on, on this story. So um, I don't know if you're in this room and you're following Jesus or how long you have been, but I know when I first started following Jesus, I would often have conversations with other people who were either new to the church or maybe they were hesitant to church or, but just kind of marginal in the church and I remember I was, I was on fire about this new life that I got to live because of Jesus. And I would share like what God was teaching me. I would share how he was changing some of my behaviors, some of the ways I did things, some of the, way, the things that I engaged in. And I, I was excited about it. And if you know me, when I get excited about something, I talk about it. And I will share it with you. And I will make sure that if I can help it, my excitement is passed on. And... Uh, so I would, I would share with people like, hey, God's really doing this in me. He's really convicted me of this. And, and I think that like, you should join me in not doing that anymore. Um, going through college, I was in a fraternity. I was into to the party scene and that kind of thing. That's where I, I got my social fixation and how I um, belonged to something bigger than myself because I hadn't uh, found Jesus in a meaningful way yet. And so when I would talk to these people that were part of my previous life, I was like, man, you, you wouldn't believe what Jesus wants to do in your heart. Like, leave that and come follow Jesus with me. And I would often get this like, man, do not judge. Don't judge. Like, let God judge. God's the judge. And I'd always get this. In, in football terms, it felt like a juke move, right? They're like, oh, don't judge. Like, I, I juked you. I juked the, the truth or the conviction or whatever God might be wanting to bring my way. And, and then I got more into the church, and the conversations were less about, hey, stop living a life of debauchery and come follow Jesus with me. And were more like, hey, you should care about lost people. Hey, don't judge me, man. God does that. Hey, you should be generous with your finances. Did you know that the Bible tells us to give? Hey, man, don't judge me. Only, only God can do that. Hey, did you know that like, God invites us into community, not just to receive a podcast on Sundays, but to come to church, to, to worship together, to be involved in a spiritual family with other brothers and sisters? Man, don't judge. Only God can judge. Have you guys ever gotten that response from people when you try to call them to a higher standard, when you try to bring something to light that maybe God would have something better for them, and you get the juke move of the, do not judge, man. Only God can judge. Or am I the only one that's ever had that interaction? I'm seeing some heads nod. This phrase of do not judge has been used countless times in contentious, intense conversations where people are being called to a higher standard. It's often in defensive moments where someone's confronted about their behavior and their response out of defense is do not judge or you too will be judged. And I believe that these famous words by Jesus are recited 
and are actually have become a profound misunderstanding in the world of church and utilizing scripture. I believe that it's probably one of the most common, misquoted, misused scriptures in the contemporary church. Um, it comes out of Matthew chapter 7, and one could easily argue that Matthew 7 um, is by far the most misapplied, used, and abused verse uh, without any regard to moral boundaries or accountability or any of that for Christians and non-Christians. And that's one of the things about this particular verse we're going to talk about today. You know, there's certain uh, scriptures, like maybe we talked about the last couple weeks, that folks in the church really kind of have it off. But this is one that my friends outside the church, when I'm like, hey, did you know God's got something more for you? Like, they even have learned to utilize this scripture. It has become kind of a shield for sin, or from sin, if you will. Um, it's a barrier to keep others at bay, allowing people to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. And their objections often sound something like this. Well, aren't we all sinners? What gives us the right to make moral judgments about someone else? Isn't that God's job? That is often the way that this is used. However, when we take a closer look at Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> and the teachings of the rest of the scripture, because remember, we want to look at like an honest look at the, the entirety of the scripture and teachings of Jesus. It's clear that this verse cannot be used to substantiate just unrestrained moral grace or moral freedom or autonomy or independence. This is not something that you can just put up as a stiff arm to any sort of accountability and do whatever you want. This was not Jesus' intent when he said this. He was not advocating for like a hands-off approach to your relationships. He was not advocating for a hands-off approach to discipleship and accountability and refusing to allow anyone to make judgments about like how someone may be acting and that that's not honoring God and to spur one another on and, and those sorts of of things. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Jesus, in this context, was explicitly rebuking the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. That's what he was addressing. Because they were quick to see the sins of others, but they were blind and unwilling to hold themselves accountable to the same standard that they were imposing on everybody else. That's what he is addressing. And so we're going to read the actual verses that this comes from and see what Jesus would have for us through his words. So let's focus in here on Matthew 7.1. This is found in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. This is the place in the Bible where Jesus teaches what it means to live faithfully as a committed follower of Christ, one who pursues holiness out of reverence for God. That's what he's teaching in the Sermon on the on the mount. For those who want to live faithfully pursuing Jesus out of holiness and reverence for God. In other words, this is for those who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation, becoming children of God. And they're adopted into God's family and they become members of the spiritual kingdom he has established here on earth. Believers who live in this kingdom are called to live differently, and Jesus is explaining what it looks like to live this way in a very practical sense. His words aren't hard to understand here, 
as he sets up a strong moral ethic that reflects what it means to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, that Jesus addresses this issue of hypocrisy. And he says this, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. He says, Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. A speck, like a piece of dust, a log. Other versions say a plank. Like figuratively, a piece of lumber in your eye and a dust particle in your eye brother's eye. That is what he is talking about here. Let's pray and we'll dive into this. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing light to scripture. God, I pray that each person in here, each person that hears this would be encouraged as we dig into the context of a commonly misused, misquoted scripture and that this would help us to pursue you in a more meaningful way, that it would help us encourage and exhort others to pursue you also in a meaningful way. God, we pray that these words would fall on open hearts and minds, and that you would have your way in this place. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read this in my imagination, which is not scripture, I'm not saying this is what happened, but I imagine him saying, you hypocrite, like looking at the Pharisees as he's delivering this Sermon on the Mount, right? Like he's clearly speaking to a very particular thing, and he says, you, you hypocrites, I can't help but wonder would they be in the crowd? Is he shifting his gaze to them as he's making this statement? Like so much of what we read in scripture, we just read it as like this, this story and we don't think about, man, he was giving this sermon to a bunch of people and the Pharisees were on to him at this point. So it's very likely that some of them would have been like, oh, we got to go see what this rabbi, because they thought he was a quote unquote rabbi. They didn't think he was legit, is teaching and just imagine, like, shifting his gaze and be like, you hypocrites. Like, I just, I just imagine that's probably what would have happened. But the Bible doesn't say that, so take it for what it's worth. But many times throughout the gospel, Jesus does have direct interaction with the Pharisees, and he rebukes them for their blatant hypocrisy and impossible man-made standards. They try to hold the regular, normal folks to these impossible standards that they don't hold themselves too. They were notorious for condemning shortcomings of others while they were the ones that stood condemned because they were doing the very same thing. And we think like, how ridiculous is that, right? I don't know about you guys, whenever I talk about or read about the Pharisees, I get really angry at them. And I'm like, gosh, these guys, who do these guys think they are? And we can often just demonize them and think we have nothing in common with them. But I want to invite you to realize that we actually have way more in common with them than we would like to realize. Um, they are not necessarily the other when these things apply to us. All too often, they are a reflection of how we actually interact with others and with Jesus. So don't just write this off. Uh, Jesus, in this, is basically saying judgment always reciprocates. It goes 
both ways. In other words, the measuring stick that they use to measure the lives of others will be the same measuring stick held up against their lives by God himself. God himself will judge them just like the others. Consider this, like thinking of, of judgment and, and who can judge. It's one thing to be judged by your fellow man because we can get it wrong. I can make a, a call or a judgment and I'm not God. I don't know what he knows and I clearly do not have the power that he does. But it's quite another thing to fathom or think about being judged by God himself. And the hypocritical Pharisees were in danger of the latter. And something that uh, I don't think they realized or wanted to have to deal with. So the main thing here in this point is that this is not about, you have no right to judge. You can't make a call about how a brother or sister are living. But this is all about hypocrisy. It is about hypocrisy. Notice Jesus says the hypocrite will be the one with the bigger problem. And why is that? Why is it, is it measured? Why is one bigger than the other? It's because their sin was not merely a speck of dust. It was more like a plank or a log. It was much bigger. He draws this comparison of how much bigger theirs was because they lacked the humility to recognize it, repent of it, and actually do something about it. They refused to take it out of their lives. And what this means is that the greater judgment is reserved for the one who has purposefully overlooked their own mammoth sin while pointing out the smaller sins of others. While pointing out the smaller sins of others. And Jesus emphatically says, this must change. This has to change. So he gives two commands here. He says, stop judging others in a hypocritical fashion and get the sin out of your own life. So what do we boil this down to? He says, don't judge others by being a hypocrite. Don't hold others to a standard you won't hold yourselves to. And secondly, get the sin out of your own life. Eradicate it. Deal with it so you can see clearly to deal with that of others. And just to be clear, like Jesus isn't suggesting that we have no right to make moral judgments about human behavior. And he's certainly not suggesting we have no right to hold others accountable. He doesn't condemn mutual accountability. People interacting in a way that is iron sharpening iron, helping one another recognize blind spots and sin that may be creeping in under the radar and a brother or sister is helping one another recognize that. He's not in any way condemning that. But he does say that sin needs to be addressed in the church. And he addresses hypocrisy head on because the leadership, the dominant voice in the church and in the culture was one of hypocrisy. And he's instituting a new kingdom, a new way of life, a new standard to live by. And he's saying this standard is that you need to be willing to humbly deal with your own sin prior to caring about everybody else's. Would you be a people that will look in the mirror prior to using the binoculars? Will you look in the mirror before you cast a magnified gaze on those around you. <clears throat> For example, if what this can look like in our lives is you hear um, another fellow believer maybe using some bad language or gossiping, and you decide to humbly come up to them and be like, hey, 
I love you. I noticed this. I just want to let you know, like, God's got better for you. This isn't the way we're supposed to live. And you lovingly correct them in private. But then a moment later, you get on the phone with some of your unbelieving friends, or maybe even some of your believing friends, and you start to spill the tea about everybody in your church community or about everybody in your family or in your neighborhood. You see, you would go to somebody and be like, you shouldn't use that word. And then a moment later, you're gossiping and talking about other people behind their backs or maybe even using the same words that in front of people or to look good in the context of maybe a Sunday morning or a small group or whatever else it may be, you're willing to have that conversation, but then you're doing the same thing or maybe even worse on the other side of it. Or imagine this, and this is, this is a little bit of a, a sensitive one, but this is one that happens way too often in our world, and I don't want to be the church that refuses to talk about sensitive things um, just because it's uncomfortable. So imagine a father, and my teenage daughter's in here, being concerned about how their teenage daughter is dressing and going into public. Never have these conversations in my home. Imagine a father being concerned about how his teenage daughter dresses when she goes to the mall. He wants her to have a sense of of modesty and respectability, right? And so, does he have the right to be concerned? Well, sure, absolutely. I believe that's part of, of a parent's role. And as a responsible father and a mature adult, he has every right to draw moral boundaries for his children in keeping with the principles of Scripture, in this case, modesty, to lead his family towards Jesus and those principles. But right after his daughter leaves for the mall, has been corrected, whatever else. Um, imagine this same father alone in the house, and he immediately turns on his computer and begins surfing the internet for pornography. Right after he corrects his daughter for modesty and, and all these things, and then he goes and starts surfing the web. One minute he's addressing his daughter's issues and inappropriate modesty, perhaps, and rightly so, but then the next moment, reveling in immodesty and reveling in fantasy with his own eyes with someone else's daughter. And I know this, this seems a little uncomfortable to hear, but we live in a world where this kind of activity runs rampant and people are unwilling to talk about it. And we have men that will draw standards in their home and in their community and with other people. And then in private, they will be sliding even further away from the truth of God in these areas. That is the kind of thing that he's talking about here. Do not be a hypocrite. Do not hold your daughter to some standard or whoever it may be that you are unwilling to function and hold yourself to the similar standard. The truth of the matter is we should all be grieved about the sin in our own lives. It's not something to be glorified, dismissed, or protected with the do not judge me shield. We are to grieve sin in our lives. And when we see it, we are called to address it, confess it, and forsake it out of reverence for God. Not entertain it, forsake it for reverence for God. And it's only when we're consistently doing this ourselves, willing to humbly recognize these things and deal with them in our own lives that we then go to our brothers and sisters and have these conversations of the things that we may see in their lives. 
that we can go in and help safeguard them as we see things creeping up into blind spots. So it's not a don't have those conversations with people. It's a, hey, look in the mirror first. Will we be a people that's willing to first look in the mirror before we put a microscope on somebody else? We'll do it to check out our outfit before we go into public. Will we do it with our heart and with our soul? Will we look in the mirror first? So that's the first part. This is all about hypocrisy. Here's the other thing that this scripture tells us. The sin in your own life actually distorts your vision. It distorts your vision. It says at the very end of that in verse 5, it says, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's or sister's eye. When you have a log in your own eye, has anybody ever like done woodworking and you got stuff in your eyes and you just can't see well? It distorts your vision. Or if you're me, take off your glasses, right? Like your, your vision is distorted. And what he's saying is when you have sin in your life that is unrepented and not dealt with, you can't actually see clearly to even deal with what's happened in your brothers and sisters' lives anyway. Because you are living a life that has allowed, entertained, and settled these things to take a stronghold. So you're not seeing clearly. And as you take the plank out of your eye, it clears your vision so that you can appropriately and caringly, lovingly enter into someone else's life. And help them address the speck of sin that is in their own life. Sin distorts your vision. If you can't see clearly, you have no business bringing some correction into somebody else's life. This is not about you live perfect and then you can go talk to somebody else. This is don't be a hypocrite. Be willing to humbly and continually repent as a lifestyle. Deal with these things in your own life. And realize that if I'm in my own mess, I'm not seeing clearly. And I may be off with what I'm seeing in your life because I'm projecting my own stuff onto you. I'm projecting my own stuff onto you. It distorts our vision. And when we humbly and repentantly deal with sin in our own lives, it removes that plank. It helps us to see clearly so we can be effective in walking alongside our brothers and sisters in whatever they are dealing with. Amen? The final part is that we need each other. We need each other in this. This is not an individual journey. The Bible makes it clear that it's our duty to spur one another on into lives that please God. There is a communal aspect to living a life that pleases God. First, our lives should give evidence that we've truly re received and repented of our sin and we're following Christ Jesus through faith. Then from time to time as necessary, we're called to mutually correct and encourage one another in love. We're called to correct and encourage one another in love. Again, like I said, nobody will reach perfection in this life. That is not the standard. But together, as family, as brothers and sisters, we wage war against and forsake the sin that is creeping up in one another's lives. I can't tell you how many times something may be creeping up in my life, and I don't even recognize it because I'm so caught up in my day-to-day -day that I don't realize that a thought pattern is starting to come out in a way I speak, and I haven't recognized it's creeping in, and I need someone that knows me, loves me, and cares about me to point it out. 
And then to walk through that with me in accountability, like we need each other. Because all too often, before we're willing to recognize it, it's gotten out of control. Instead of the early warning signs being recognized by those around us that love us and care for us. We need each other. The reality is we cannot accomplish this without the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit working and empowering us in our lives and the mutual encouragement and accountability of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We need all of that. We can't do this alone. We need each other. So this then is why the apostles called us to help one another in our struggle with sin. For example, James says this in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And then Paul says something similar in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I cannot read these verses and then look at Matthew 7 and say, this just means mind my own business and stay out of everybody else's life. Do not judge. Don't have anything to say about that. Don't care about other people and what they may be dealing with. So to remain consistent with Scripture, we have to realize that we, in fact, need one another. And notice that both James and Paul here say two specific things. First, there will be times when fellow believers wander off the straight and narrow path. People will have challenges. People will struggle. It's not, if this would ever happen, like it's some statistical anomaly, it's no, 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 when this happens, make sure that you're there to help them. And secondly, they assume that other Christians, out of love, will seek to come alongside that brother or sister in an effort to bring him or her back from the error of their ways and from the power of the destruction of sin. Like, that's assumed in this, that there will be fellow Christians that out of love will enter into that and bring them back into God's will for their lives, that they will help them to leave the destructive power of sin. And since we've been commissioned to proclaim a message of repentance and faith outside the church to those who need to hear the good news, certainly we need to be proclaiming that same good news inside the church. Oftentimes you hear us talk so much about, hey, go talk to your neighbors. Let them know about Jesus. This is important that we share this good news that we can lose sight, that that same good news needs to be continually proclaimed in the church and mutually ministered to one another as well. It's not like, hey, once you get in the church doors and you get water baptized, you're good, you're saved, you never need to be reminded of this good news and never need to be spurred along again. It's just the beginning of a new life. It's not some destination that you've reached. This same good news needs to be continually preached inside the church. Therefore, Jesus does not in any way forbid moral judgment or accountability from within his community. Rather, he forbids harsh, prideful, and hypocritical judgment that condemn others outright without first evaluating one's own spiritual condition and commitment to forsake sin. This imagery that I mentioned earlier of working together to wage war against and forsake sin, 
that means that it's a common enemy, not just an enemy of your brother and sister, but a friend of yours. We cannot enter into these conversations waging war against the powers and principalities of darkness in one another's lives and in this world if I'm over here befriending it, but I'm telling you it's your enemy and we're engaging it, maybe one behind enemy lines and one trying to be at the front lines. Like it's got to be together waging war against and forsaking sin. And my final point on this is going to come from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And you've heard this verse or these verses before, but it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, also meaning beneficial, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If the word of God... It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Then there has to be a mutual engagement in the community of believers in standing on that word and helping others. Training isn't something that you're just like, you're trained, and it just, it just happens, right? Have, if you've ever been a part of a sports team or in a weight room, like it's a journey. You have to take incremental steps, and somebody has to correct you, teach you, show you where you went wrong so you can do better the next time. And that's the imagery here. The Word of God is used to train, to correct, to teach, and that requires relationship, mutual ministry. It requires doing this in the context of community, and it certainly will not happen happen if we just give the stiff arm of the do not judge verse out of context, we then put ourselves in a place where we will not be trained, where we, we will not be taught, we will not be pursuing the righteousness of God. We need one another to speak into our lives. We cannot just sit in a corner, me, my podcast, and my Bible and actually grow into what God has for us. We need each other. The scriptures are laced with the context of community and growth in the context of community. Now, can you be saved and not be in a church? Absolutely, you're saved by faith in Jesus alone. Can you flourish as a disciple of Jesus outside of community? Absolutely not. I do not believe you can flourish in all that God has for you and experience the breadth of a life following him and engage in his mission alone, outside of community, isolated. And that's why there's so many people searching right now because we had a period of some level of mandated isolation that got people into mental health crisis, depression, all kinds of things. And there is hope in community. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope in growing in Jesus. But what I hope this shows you today is that growth in Christ happens in community. And it happens with sometimes tense conversations where somebody points out something that maybe you missed, maybe you didn't see to help you pursue righteousness in the person of Jesus. But we need each other to do that. And when this scripture is misused, it removes that opportunity from the one's life who is using it. And I pray that by bringing light to it today, it will safeguard each of you and anyone who hears this and those who you get to share this truth with from removing themselves from the blessing of what God has in the context of community and conversations in a spirit-filled life. Amen.
That's the heart of this. Worship team, you can come back up. So as we close, I want to challenge, encourage, ask you, if you would commit to being and seeing, we'll say seeing Scripture in a way that does not promote apathy, that does not promote moral relativism and promote and allow sinful patterns and and habits to flourish in your life or in the lives of those around you? Would you be committed to having loving conversations with people after you have humbly went before Jesus and addressed those same things in your life? Would you be willing to do that? Will you understand that We are a part of this glorious story of redemption and restoration that the narrative of the Bible points to. Will you see that every brother and sister in Christ has a role and a responsibility to come alongside one another and spur one another on towards Jesus? That the scripture that is being misused is about hypocrisy, not about accountability. That we need each other, but we need to also humbly deal with the sin in our lives so we can see clearly so we can have eyes to see what God is doing, what he has for us, and what conversations may be before us. Would we be a people that view the world and our lives and our relationships in that way, through a narrative of ultimate redemption in Christ Jesus, not just isolation and trying to preserve ourselves from hard conversations? Because I'll, I'll guarantee you, like, if we live life this way, there's some awkward conversations in your future but it's for the sake of Jesus. It's for the sake of someone's status with Jesus. It's for the sake of people fully following him, loving him, coming into right relationship with him. It is so worth it. So I just wanna encourage you, would you take that perspective as you engage, not only in the Bible, but in what the Bible means for you and those around you, amen? Let's pray. So God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your word wasn't just for those that were the first readers of it, but it's just as necessary and relevant for us today. I pray that you would help us to first deal with that log in our eyes, help us to humbly live a lifestyle of repentance, turning from the things that would draw us away from you. And God, would you work in us to help others to do the same thing. God, we we admit this life is not our own. We give it to you. Would you work in us? Would you work through us? And would you help us to not settle for a life apart from you and your people? So God, we pray for humility. We pray for unity. And ultimately, we pray that we would be on the same team as we fight back against the powers and principalities of darkness that are in this world, that are seeking to kill and destroy. Would you help us to stand up for what is good and right? Would you help us to seek you in all that we do? So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand as we close in worship.